1 Corinthians chapter 4, title this sermon today, The Marks of a Spiritual Father. The Marks of a Spiritual Father. And we will finish up chapter 4 uh, today and stick around at the end of uh, the message today for sure, because I will tell you um, really what uh, plans we have for the summer. Do plan on on doing something for the uh, summer, just a bit different, taking a break here, but we'll let you know about that in a moment. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The marks of a spiritual father. We, we come now to a section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians that I really hope you will find incredibly uh, practical. Um, Paul has been speaking to the Corinthians, attempting to deal with their problems of division and carnality in the church by, by explaining his relationship to them and trying to give them the proper pr- perspective on that. And he used many metaphors to communicate that. He's used the, the metaphor of the farmer, or the builders, or the servants, or or stewards. He's used all these things of himself and Apollos to just communicate that there's a, a right relationship that exists there. And he is trying to establish that there that the the ministry of a pastor um, is not to be exalted as a into into an ungodly place. And he's had to get harsh with them at some points. Particularly, we looked at this last week in verses 8 to 10 because he was quite sarcastic in nature. In fact, just to review it, just look at it. Verse 8 of chapter 4, You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. But we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Yes, um, we we saw some sort of harsh, sar- sarcastic words coming out of Paul's mouth last week. And really, um, he was doing that to rebuke their pride. If you remember, that was the real uh, problem that they were dealing with. And he ended that section with contrasting their pride with the the humility that they should have, which was exemplified in the apostles, which is why he lists the sufferings and the different things they had to endure, just to to give them the proper uh, perspective. In our passage today, Paul explains why he has been so harsh. Because you might look at that and go, wow, that's a little bit much, don't you think, from Paul? Well, he does explain why he has been so stern with them. And the reason is, is because he loves them as a father loves his children. In fact, that comes from verse 15. You can just look at it there. Verse 15, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. This is a more intimate metaphor, isn't it? Than the farmer or the builder. He says um, that the relationship between a preacher and his converts, or even a pastor and his his people, is pictured as that of a father and his child. If you're a father, and you have had to discipline your children, you've had to get stern with them to the point of maybe even um, a little bit of a a physical reproving, (laughs) Uh, no doubt you'd said something to the effect of this. I'm doing this because I love you. (laughs) Have you ever said that before? And no doubt your children begged to differ. But that is the manner of discipline. 
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Hebrews tells us that. We sometimes have to be quite strong and stern when dealing with our children. We don't do it because we we hate them. We do it because we love them. And children are in a a unique state, aren't they? They're they're immature. They're not born fully mature into this world. They're born immature. And so they they lack uh, life experience. Uh, They lack wisdom. Uh, They lack knowledge just about basic things. That's why you have to go around and cover up the light sockets when they're little and they've got a little, you know, little metal thing in their hand. You know, they just want to see, oh, what happens if I stick this in? There's a natural curiosity. And, you know, you have to just sort of rein those things in. As parents, you're trying to instruct. You're trying to pass on wisdom and knowledge so that they can make right decisions. But they do not always do that. And so we must correct them. And depending on the seriousness of the situation, we may discipline with more severity. And Paul is disciplined with more severity at this point because he deems this to be a serious situation. I remember when I was young, we were at some friend's house for for dinner. My brother and I were out playing in the front yard and my dad had said, don't don't go into the street, just play in the yard. I don't know what caused me to do this, but I did. I, I ran into the street. I don't remember if I was chasing a ball or what I was doing, but I do remember what happened. I remember that I ran across the street and my little brother followed me, and my little brother was hit by a car. Yeah. Now, thankfully, the car was going slow enough because he had seen me cross the street that he had slowed down, but he was still moving. And so when my brother came out, he was knocked up on top of the bonnet of the car. Um, that explains a lot about his life today. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but the, uh, my, my family just laughed at that. Uh, that was my brother, Keith. And, uh, and guess what? My dad, he disciplined me for that. And that was an act of love for me, but also a love for his his other son, right? Because I could have really caused his death if that car had not been more uh, so attentive. And so a father uh, disciplining is an act of love. And Paul is their spiritual father. He's the one who brought the gospel to them, and so he loves them, and he wants to see them living lives for the glory of of God. But their arrogance and their their pride um, has really created factions in the church instead, and Paul, he has to address it. He just can't let that slide, and so he's been a little harsh with them. And and so this section of the scripture, he's explaining why he's been harsh. And as he does this, we're going to find that Paul lays out the, the necessary elements for Uh, an effective discipleship relationship. And I think this is so important for the church to hear today. They are characteristics of a spiritual father. Yes, and pastors are to be spiritual fathers, but listen, so is every Christian. Do you remember the person who led you to Christ? That would be your spiritual father. That's the person who brought you into this world with with new life. He didn't do that. He was the tool in God's hand, but he's your spiritual father. Maybe you weren't saved directly through the discipleship of an individual. Maybe, Maybe you were home alone and you were listening to a message on the radio 
Or maybe you were simply reading scripture and the Holy Spirit convicted you and you repented then and there. Well, then I would say your spiritual father would be the one primarily responsible for your discipleship, your growth as a believer. Maybe you led someone to Christ. Well, if you've done that, you are their spiritual father. So this passage applies to all of you as well. And so I do pray that you would really take to heart what is, what is said here. We're going to see these sort of six elements of a spiritual father or um, elements for effective discipleship laid out for us by Paul. So let's read the passage today. It's chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this um, very important passage. We thank you for these words from Paul. Lord, just pray today that as we open up your word and we read and we study, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate truth to our hearts, Lord, that um, we have before us a a very practical passage that we would take these things to heart, seek to apply them to our lives, Lord, that we might live the, the, the believer's life that we're meant to live, the life of a true believer, to reproduce, spiritually speaking, Lord. And I just pray that we would we would really find and take these things to heart today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll just read off the six things, but we'll go through them one by one. But we're going to see these six elements here that a spiritual father uh, loves. He warns, he begets, he sets an example, he teaches, and he disciplines. Those are the six things we'll see today, and we'll highlight each one of those as we come to them. And first and foremost, we see here, a spiritual father loves. He loves. And this is in verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, he says, I warn you. So let's look at this. This is a very important passage here, a very important word to look at. The word is beloved, agapatos. You should have it on there, yeah. Agapetos, sorry, agapetos. And it is really uh, the verb of agapao, which is the strongest kind of love. It's the agape love. And that's more than the brotherly love, the phileo love. It's that determined, willful love. And that's the love that Paul says he has here. They are his beloved children, his agapetos children. When you think about fathers... It is so easy uh, to love our children, especially when they are a brand new. Well, maybe not so brand new, because when they first arrive, 
they're a little weird looking, to be honest. I mean, you know, they're kind of like squished up and purple and covered in stuff. But when they clean them up, right, the nurse cleans them and they hand this cute little delicate thing to you wrapped in this blanket, you just, your heart just goes, oh, wow, this is incredible. They're so innocent. They're so vulnerable. And instantly you're filled with an overwhelming sense of responsibility and love and care for this child. But they grow. And, and, and they may grow into one of those willful, rebellious teenagers who seem to show little love or respect for you. Do you cease to love them? No, you still love them. And I liken that relationship here that, that Paul has with like one of those rebellious teenagers, right? That he, he loves them, but he's got to be stern with them. And he says, I have that kind of fatherly love for this church, even though they weren't necessarily being very loving toward him. In fact, if you look at verse 18, just look ahead very quick. He says, now some have puffed up as though I were not coming to you. I mean, some of them are, are so conceited, they're saying, well, I mean, he's talking the talk. Let's see if he walks the walk. He says he's going to come here. I doubt it. They're, they're so conceited, they, they, they think Paul's not actually going to come and try to correct them. In fact, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14. I want to give you a, a glimpse of how Paul expresses his love for them. 2 Corinthians 12 just a very short right-hand turn. Look at verse 14. Now, for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. You see that? Paul just thinks it's his responsibility to lay up for them, to provide for them, and to spend all for them, even though as he does that and increases more, he doesn't necessarily feel like, like he's receiving that love in return. That, that's agape love. It's willful love. It is loving someone, not because you think they've earned it, not because they deserve it, not because they love you in return. You determine to set your love on them. That's the love of Jesus, right? That's how he loves you. It's not because he saw anything particularly good in Kevin and said, oh, I want to love him. He, he, he didn't see anything good. He just determined willfully to set his love upon me. That's the example of love that we're to have. The love of a spiritual father for his converts or a pastor for his church. It's a willful, purposeful love. And all of the other elements we're going to see today are prompted by that love. You if you're in a spiritual discipleship relationship, then you've, you've got to love them. Be willing to do life with them through the good, through the bad, through the ups and the downs. And that's what we have to do to show that love. We must walk through life with them. So love is so important. It's the first thing that he mentions here. But notice Right away in the same verse, he also mentions a second one, and that is he warns. A spiritual father warns. He warns them. So look at verse 14 again. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Paul's harsh and uh, sarcastic rebuke 
And indeed, all, all of his correction in all the first four chapters could and should cause someone to, to start feeling shamed. Uh, now, you've got to think about this. This letter would have been written and sent to the Corinthian church, and they would have read it aloud. And what would you be thinking when you're hearing these things and you are involved in some of those things? Well, some say I'm of, of Paul, Paulus, and some say I'm of Paul, right? And you're just carnal, I would like to talk to you as spiritual, but you're carnal. You're, you're immature. You're, you're spiritual babes in, in Christ. And he's saying these things, you just kind of sink in further down in your chair. How would you feel if you had those four chapters read to you? You would probably start to feel shame. But Paul tells them that shame wasn't the ultimate goal. He wanted to see their prideful hearts turned into humble ones. But if the harsh words brought shame and produced that, then, then great. But that's, that wasn't the goal. He said what he did in order to warn them. And here's the word. It's nutheteo. Nutheteo. It's to admonish or to exhort. But the literal word means to put in mind. To put in mind with the purpose of warning and reproving. He wants to put it into their minds. What does this mean? This is what it means. It, it presupposes that something is wrong. And the intention is to correct it in order to bring about change. He said, I said these things to you so that I would put this thought into your mind. And that you would think about it. And that you would desire change. That is the idea. In fact, let me show you how it's used in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. He says this, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Notice what he says, warn those who are unruly. They don't know they're unruly until you warn them. You have to put it into their mind. He says you've got to get out there, admonish them. Put it in their mind. It's a, it's a loving warning. Put into their mind in order to see that person change. Why? So they can avoid punishment. So they will avoid judgment. That's the whole idea. Paul has that kind of fatherly love and concern for his converts. What, what earthly father doesn't have that kind of fatherly love for his own children? They're going down the wrong path. Of course you're going to put into their mind you know, where, where drugs are going to lead. Drug addiction and alcohol addiction. Like where, you, you wouldn't just let them, well, let them go figure it out. Of course you're going to put it into their minds. Listen, you need to know the dangers here. And that's what he's done here. You are filled with pride. We've got to deal with that. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. He doesn't mention the word warn here, but this is just an idea of the fatherly love he has. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know... How we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see that? I exhorted you, I comforted, I charged, just like a father does his own child, just so that you would walk worthy of God. That is the idea. That is the idea of the warning. It's the... It's, it's not only spiritual fathers, let me just tell you. It's not just the, the pastors. It's not just evangelists. It, this is, listen, given to all believers. We're called to warn others. Um, Paul tells us that in Romans. He says, admonish one another. So we, we should have a deep love and concern for one another. And when we see one of our own going astray, 
Well, we, we need to warn them of that error. If we fail to do that, the outcome could be quite tragic, can't it? Now, you fail to warn your child about the dangers of running into a street, right? Then the, the outcome could be quite tragic. The outcome of my escapade could have been quite tragic. God was gracious in that matter. But he's not always so. You take the case of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. You remember that? Eli was a, was a priest, and he had these two sons who were just wicked, horrible. First uh, Samuel talks about what, they, what they, 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 they did. They cheated people. They, they lied with women at the door of the, the tabernacle where people would go to, to worship. And, and Eli was so uninvolved with his kids, so uninvolved in their lives, apathetic, who knows, complacent, that he really just lost touch. He really didn't know what they were going on about. But he heard about it. And once he heard about it, then he went to them and addressed them, but, it, but then it was too late. Uh, but he goes to them, he says, well, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Isn't that terrible? He's hearing about all the evil that they're doing from everyone else, because everyone else knows it. And so by then, you know, it's just too late. He goes, why, why have you been doing all these things? And if you remember the story... Um, Sam, Samuel is, is, is being trained, right, as, as a, really a prophet, priest, and he, he, he hears from God, and God gives him a message to give to Eli, and he tells him this, for I told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. I'm going to judge him, I'm going to judge his kids, because they're evil, they're vile, but he knows about it and he didn't restrain them. And that's what happens. The Philistines come and conquer the Israelites. They rout them in this battle. They take the Ark of the Covenant. They kill Hophni and Phinehas. And then the news of that defeat is taken to Eli. And he's so overcome by that news that he falls over and breaks his neck and dies. Tragic, tragic end because they failed to warn. If you're in a spiritual uh, relationship, a discipleship relationship, warning is part of what you must do. You must warn of the dangers of going down the wrong path. You must warn them. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, here's a third thing. A spiritual father begets. Begets. B-E-G-E-T-S. He begets. And that is found in verse 15. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Begotten you. That's where I get the word begets. Now, let me just back up and ask you. A father is someone who has a child, right? I mean, you could be a man. Um, you could be a, be a husband. But if you don't have a child, you're not a father. Biologically speaking, you become a father when you reproduce. That's when you become a father. So metaphorically speaking, you become a spiritual father when you bring someone to Christ. That's the picture that he's given here. And so Paul considers the Corinthians to be his children. He considers himself their father. And if you were to go back to Acts 18, we won't do it today, but that recounts the sort of 
uh, founding of the church in Corinth. If you remember, he goes into Corinth, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, and he's got a relationship with them. Early on, he starts to teach and preach in the synagogue. Crispus is converted, so he's Crispus's spiritual father. And you have the, the, the founding of the church in Corinth. And so he, he begins to sort of become the father of many and many places, spiritually speaking. He founded all those churches in Galatia. You have Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, all those churches that he founded that are in those regions. And when he writes to them in Galatians, he says, what? My little children, my little children, right? They're not his, his physical little children. They're his spiritual little children. And one of the converts from that region was a man named Timothy. And Timothy was his spiritual son. You actually see him appear here in our passage in verse 17. Just take a look. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. That's that. Timothy, he calls him his son. Another one is Onesimus. I mentioned him a few weeks back. He calls him his son as well. He was a runaway slave from his master Philemon, and he found Paul when Paul was in prison, and he was converted. He was led to the Lord. So he, he is his, Onesimus, his spiritual father, right? So he sends him back to Philemon. He calls Titus his true child in a common faith. And what he's doing is he's making a distinction here between himself and the 10,000 instructors. Do you see that in verse 15? You might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you don't have you know, that many fathers. Typically, you're going to have one, right? And the word that he uses for instructors here is really important. It's the word pahidagogos. Pahidagogos, and it means a tutor. A tutor. Now, this would have been a household tutor. He would have been a slave responsible for the training and the moral upbringing of small children in the house. So this, um, this tutor would have taken them to school and walked them back and forth. He would have tutored them in the home. He would try to uh, teach them moral lessons. That's the idea there. And it's true that the Corinthians, they could have had an innumerable amount of spiritual tutors. And all of them could have been very helpful. They could have been very useful. But the reality was they had only one spiritual father, and that was Paul. It is an unfortunate reality today that many Christians have never become spiritual fathers. They've never produced spiritual offspring. That's one of the most important characteristics of life, isn't it? Reproduction. All living things reproduce. And just as we've been given new life in Christ, it should be the goal of every believer to see that new life reproduced in another. I remember that I had never had that uh, joy, not before uh, ministry. And even into the ministry as a children's pastor, that's how I started. I just wondered, gosh, when's the first time going to be? You know, how is that going to happen when I'm able to lead, you know, one of these children to the Lord? And I remember when it happened, we went to summer camp and we took a bunch of kids to a uh, to a, just a, a camp and, uh, you know, we had teachings throughout the day and the evenings and we played games and we, you know, had all kinds of fun in the summer. And at the end of that week, we, we marched ourselves down a trail to a river and I waded out into that river and I gave one final message. And then I said, hey, has anyone made a decision for Christ? Has anyone decided that they want to give their heart to him? They want to seek him for forgiveness of his sins. And, and I had this, this kid raise his hand. His name was Jakin. Still remember him today. Named out of the Bible, Jacob. And he 
came wading out into the water with tears in his eyes. And I asked him all those questions as, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And he says, yes. <laughs> right? Is he your Lord and master? And as your Lord and master, would is it your desire to do everything and anything he would ask you? Yes. And, and if you were to die today, would you believe that you would go and spend eternity with him? And yes. And I said, well, by your profession and faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. I baptize him right in that freezing water. <laughs> and it was such a joy. And then I said, is there anybody else that would like to get baptized? <laughs> and this little hand went up, and it was my son, Ethan. Now, Ethan wasn't old enough to be actually in the camp, but we had kids and we had to do something with them. So we would bring them to these camps, these poor kids. They were dragged around <laughs> everywhere, right? But Ethan just, you know, Ethan, he ate these things up and he's out there doing the water games and you know he's doing all the stuff that all the bigger kids were doing and he just thought he was one of the group but he had been listening and he came wavy out to me (laughs) gave his life to the lord and i baptized him there in that river so i have the privilege of being my son's natural biological father (laughs) and his spiritual one now that is a joy that is a joy and that should be that joy of seeing that new life converted (laughs) before your eyes right that should just just make you want to find someone who wants to hear the good news right i'm ready to be someone's father that's the idea Now, I do want to clarify something that Paul says here. Paul says, I have begotten you, but that is not the same as I have saved you. I do want to make clear that distinction. Notice what he says, in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So the source of every spiritual birth is the power of God in Christ and in the the truth of the word of God. Um, that's from a divine standpoint, right? That's what God is, is using. A great example is James 1, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See that from God's perspective, it's his will and his word that causes us to become these first fruits, these new creatures, So God does the begetting through the word. That's uh, the instrument that he uses there. His spirit is the power. Remember that which is born of the spirit is spirit in in John chapter 3. But there's a third thing that he uses, and that's a human agent. In this case, it is Paul. Remember, Jesus made this prayer in Matthew 9, 38. He sees the harvest ripe. And he says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I mean, this is God talking. He could have said, oh, the harvest is is ripe. I'm going to take them. Nope. He says, so since they're ready, let's pray that laborers are sent. God in his sovereignty has chosen to use human agents like you and me. We see this balance even in the physical reproduction. As we're talking about spiritual reproduction, the same balance is in physical reproduction. God knits us together in the womb, right? Every time you see the womb opened in Scripture, God is the one who has done that. He's either closed it or he's opened it because God is the author of life. Yet, no child is born without the seed. 
which comes from a human agent. So the same is true as a spiritual father. A spiritual father begets. I know that there are discipleship relationships taking place in our church, even right now. That is an amazing thing. In fact, you definitely should have pad and paper and be writing these points down because this is speaking of you. If you're in that relationship, you're the you know father role, right? And you're training this. You need to be marking these things, things down. This is so important. A spiritual father begets. We want to be reproducing um, out there. But there is a fourth thing Paul brings up in verses 16 and first part of 17, and that is this. A spiritual father sets an example. He sets an example. Look at verse 16. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Imitate me. Well, fathers must set the examples for their children, right? How often have you heard parents jokingly say, do as I say, not as I do? Yeah, you heard that? Maybe you said that yourself. Listen, that's a recipe for disaster because that will not happen. It, it, it assumes, that phrase assumes that your children are, are stupid, that they're, they're naive, but children are very perceptive and they are natural mimics. They will mimic their parents. They will do as you do. That's what they will do. I asked for permission to share this story, but my wife, when, gosh, we just had the two youngest, we had, you know, two oldest, be Ryan and Ethan, as toddlers, she had to train them very diligently, and she did a great job. So they're not running around and causing havoc. They always had to have a hand on the cart, uh, the, the trolley, right? That was the law, right? And, you, and as soon as they left, nope, your hand's not on here. Now that limited their range, right? They could only like reach as far as like... So anyway, she's had a tough time with reminding them of those things in the store. And all she wants to do is get the shopping done and get out. Could you relate, ladies, right? You just want to get the task done and get out. And she's going down this little aisle, and in front of her is this little old lady, and she's taking up the whole aisle because she's right in the middle, and she's just barely moving along. And, and, and you know, Jody's not saying anything, but just by her actions, you know, she's just like trying to get her, you could just sense the impatience there. And Ryan picked up on his mom's desperate situation, seeing mom anxious. He looks and sees the problem and decides to solve it by saying, Hey, old lady, move it. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Ryan's laughing right now. Is that one of your best memories? Yeah. <laughs> now, could you imagine, ladies, would you, what would you do? You just kind of shrink up like, I'm going to hide. Um, and the lady did respond in a way I thought was interesting. She said something to the effect of, Well, you're going to be old one day too, young man, type of thing, right? But Jody handled it well. She went up to him, her with Ryan and made Ryan apologize, that whole thing. But, but why did Ryan do that? Right? He, he wasn't mimicking anything she said, but he picked up on her anxiety, her angst. And he was, he was moved to, to solve that issue there. They know if we're practicing what we preach is my point in telling that story. One of the hardest places to disciple is in the home. That is is true. Why? Because your disciples see every facet of your life. They see you in the morning before you've had that coffee. They see you in the evening when all you want to do is fall into bed and be done with the day, and they see all the ugly in between. This is a difficult place to disciple. That's why having godly children is required of an elder. 
because it, it sort of is evidence that he himself is godly. How are the children acting? Are they acting like his father? Right? They, they probably are. <laughs> so let's look at the children. How unruly and crazy and disrespectful are they? That could be a reflection of the father. Real discipleship doesn't happen through books, through eight-week discipleship courses. It happens by life, doing life together. That's why Paul says, imitate me. You don't see Paul sitting down and say, okay, now everyone come on a Saturday. We're going to have this six-week course. I want to... that. Listen, books are helpful, and we use books. I'm using one with someone right now. I know someone else who's using one going through it because the books are given the, the theology, right? The groundwork and the structure of our faith, and those are helpful things, and that should not, not be disregarded. But what I'm saying is true discipleship in the relationship happens by doing life together. That was always Joey's, Jody's model. She always just had the young ladies over at the house. You remember the, the girls? We always call them the girls because at one point we had those, those three girls going to university, uh, Esther and Caroline and Hannah. And they often were, were close by where we lived and they would often come over. I would come home and, and they would be in my kitchen. They would be baking with Jody, cooking with Jody, helping to clean the house. And, and why? Because she was trying to model for them what it looks like to be a mother with kids running around and trying to do household duties. What is it like to be a, a wife? What's it like to be a pastor's wife where she's also handling sort of ministry things there? That's why Paul says, imitate me. Later on in the chapter, he's going to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's not just do what I do, but I, I'm doing what Christ does. So then you can do what I do. You should make sure that's what's happening. Right? There are, do they look like Christ? Do they look like they have that together? Then you can imitate them. I want to take you to, uh, really, really quickly, I just want to look at um, Titus 2. Titus 2. If you just skip ahead to Titus 2, it just popped in my head. This is a great, great example of imitating um, uh, here. Titus 2, you have this example of older men um, and what they, should, what they should be teaching, what they should be doing, and then the older women. And they're mentioned in verse 3, and it says, The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Okay, what good things? Well, they go on to list. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. I mean, the one thing that, that Paul points out that older women should be teaching the younger women is just to, to do a good job in the home with their husbands and with their kids. How much of that is happening? Isn't that so important? Because that's where discipleship really is centered in. It's so important. Go back to our passage here. Paul is saying he wants the Corinthians to imitate him. In fact, I remember um, when he talks to the, to the Philippians, he, he, he lists off the things that I said, the things that uh, you learned, the things that you received, the things that you heard, right? He's listing all these things like, do those things, right? Do those things. He was constantly going to these churches, to these regions and, and establishing churches and saying, do the things you saw, 
heard, received, do those things. He was constantly trying to get people to imitate him. And so Paul is saying the same thing here, but get this, this is so interesting. Imitate me, verse 17, and for this reason, I've sent Timothy to you. Wait, wait, what? What a sec, what? Wait, you want us to imitate you, and, and because you want us to imitate you, you, you sent Timothy. You sent Timothy. That doesn't make any sense. Imitate me, and for that reason, I am coming to you. No, he doesn't say that. Imitate me, and for that reason, I am sending Timothy to you. Why does Paul send Timothy if he wants them to imitate him? This is the supreme example of spiritual fatherhood. This is the idea. Paul had done such a great job with Timothy, discipling him, raising him as a spiritual son, that to send Timothy was just as good as if Paul had gone himself. Does that make sense? I mean, let me give you an example. I was led to Christ by my natural father. Uh, my, my, my father led me to Christ. And that next Sunday or two weeks off, I was baptized in our church. So my, my biological father is my spiritual father. But my late te- teenage years and early years as a young man, I, I was walking away from the Lord. I didn't have anything to do with, you know, church and those things. And so when God called me back to that, I began to come back to him and attend church faithfully and get involved and it eventually led to, to, to ministry. Um, Pastor Chris became the one that was the primary tool in my discipleship. I mean, I could look to him to say, well, he's probably my spiritual father in the sense of all the discipleship that I received over all those years of of ministry. And so Pastor Chris can feel comfortable enough with where I am to send me halfway around the world to be in a church here. Does that make sense? Like He's just as comfortable as if he were here teaching. Now, I am not Chris. I am quite different than Chris, right? And we don't teach the same way. We don't act the same way. We don't look the same way. But what am I imitating? I'm imitating his manner of life. I'm imitating his love for God and his love for the word, his love for people. Those things I've taken. I'm like, I'm going to do the same thing here. That's what Paul has done, right? Imitate me. In fact, I'm going to send Timothy. He'll show you how to do it. That's the idea. So it's essential that you're able to set an example as a spiritual mentor, as a spiritual uh, fa- uh, father, that is is primary. And so that's why the relationship has to go beyond just courses and books. They're not going to learn it there. You've got to do life with them. Be the example with them. Go through it with them. Let them follow you as you follow Christ. A fifth thing, a fifth one, is... A spiritual father teaches. A spiritual father teaches. And that's verse 17. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ. So there he's reminding him of his ways. As I teach everywhere in every church. As I teach everywhere in every church. So this is another element of a spiritual father. It's, it's teaching. And notice it's the same teaching that Paul teaches in every Church, it's not like we teach one thing to one person over here and then another thing to another over there. We don't need to cater the word to the person. The word doesn't change. It's the person that changes and conforms to the word. 
He teaches the same thing everywhere in every church. Why? The principles of Scripture apply to all. Doesn't matter who you are. I hear people trying to say, oh no, it's not one size fits all. You've got to like, you know, fashion this to that person, that character. It's like, that is, that is rubbish. <laughs> they conform to the word, not the other way around. So when Timothy comes, he's coming as the example of what Paul preaches everywhere. You see that? He's going to remind you of my ways in Christ. So he's going to remind you of imitating me. But he's also going to teach you everything that I teach everywhere. So it's not just the imitating and that action of, 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 of mimicking the life, right? But also backing that up with the doctrine, with the teaching. In fact, this is the greatest model, isn't it? Teach it, live it, reproduce it. Teach it, live it, reproduce it. That's, that's the idea there. Now, we here at Calvary Chapel Cardiff know how important teaching is. That's I mean, we, we, we rest on that, expository preaching. You know, that's what we do. But let me just say this. When it comes to being a spiritual father and uh, a spiritual mentor, if you're in a discipleship relationship and it comes to the teaching part of it, two things will help you. Keep it practical and keep it simple. You don't need to dig in and dive into all the deep mysteries of God. And that's one of the things that the books become helpful uh, for. The design for discipleship books we use are, are just, just the basics, right? It just goes through the fundamentals of the faith. Who is Jesus? Who is God, right? Who's the Holy Spirit? What's the Bible? And it just goes through those things in a nice, easy pace, backing it up with Scripture. Those things are great. But don't rush to dig into all these deep and you know difficult things. Now, I love the eagerness out there. Not too long ago, someone in a disciple relationship, and they're probably watching right now, um, sent a question to their discipler who forwarded the question to me, right? And said, well, there's the easy, simple answer to that. And then there's the long answer. I gave them both. Like, you know, pick which one you want to go with, right? Well, on the one hand, it's this. On the other hand, it's this. Because I don't know where they are in that, in that relationship. I want to keep it simple on the one hand. But if you want to go deep and get your mind around some of this, well, there's the other answer to that. But best just to keep it practical and keep it simple. A good example of this is, is when we're discipling in the home, isn't it? Because your kids, when they're young, they're all ask you all kinds of questions. You won't know exactly how to answer, right? I mean, when they ask you things like, how, how can God be in my heart and be everywhere at the same place, right? I mean, how do you, how do you begin to explain that? You know, like, well, you know, he's, he just, he's, he's everywhere. He's, he's not just in my heart. He's in your heart and his heart, their heart and in all the hearts of all the Christians all over the world. And they start to go, wow, he just must be fat. Like he's just this big fat God. Like, no, well, that's not quite the thing I'm trying to convey, right? You just don't know how to go there. This little book has been so helpful, a faith to grow on. And we actually got these for all the the, the parents that were in the last parenting course that we had done. A Faith to Grow On just goes through the basic topics uh, that you'd want to cover, but for a little mind, right? So you're going to cover God. Can we see God? Are we like God? How are we different from God? What does God want from us? I mean, those are great, great questions that are covered in, in just God or even heaven. Where does God live? Is heaven the best place to live? What's heaven like, right? So it covers all those little things. That's that's the kind of idea I'm talking about here, is that when you're in a relationship with a, a new, young uh, believer in the faith, you've just given them the, the basic principles, the basic understanding, and then they're going to grow uh, beyond that. So, to recap, 
A spiritual father he loves, he warns, he begets, he sets an example, he teaches, and lastly, a spiritual father disciplines. He disciplines. And that we see in the remaining verses, 18 to 21. Let's look at it. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Discipline's not an optional thing for a natural father. Just as our Heavenly Father uses discipline to bring us back into line, it is expected that a natural father's, uh, well, they'll have to do the same. In Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12, it says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Do you see that? We're not to despise the Lord when he disciplines us or rebukes us, because he does it just as a father delights in his son. It's, it's the delight of the father. So what is Paul doing here? He is addressing the pride of these people. Some of them are puffed up, verse 18. They don't believe Paul has the guts to come and face, face them himself. But Paul assures them that if the Lord wills, he will come. And what's he going to do when he comes? What's he checking for? Well, what's he say there? If the Lord wills, I'll, I'll, I'll come to you shortly, right? And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. The power. What's he saying here? The ultimate proof of the state of their hearts would not lie in the words. Talk is, talk is cheap. It's not the words. I, I don't care how much someone tells me they... they they love God, they're obedient to Him, they want to serve, they want to do these things. The proof isn't in the words. The proof is in the power. I'm sure these people had a ready argument for Paul. They, would, they were prepared to defend their actions, but Paul was not concerned with how tight their argument or sound their argument would be. He was going to be checking for power, spiritual power. And the manifestation of power is in character and in deed. Those two things. Is Christ's power at work in you? Don't tell me about it. I need to see it. It's in their character. It's in their deed. It's the inside, not the outside. That's why he says, because the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It's not about words. It's not about how much you think you do this or know this or how. It's how are you living it? And that's a very, very important principle. James told us that we need to be doers of the word, not hearers only, right? deceiving yourselves. Deceiving yourselves. People that are hearers only are just deceiving themselves into believing that they're, they're religious. They've, they've got what they need. They've, they've reached some kind of spiritual, you know, place that pinnacle. I don't know. It's not about that. Faith without works is dead, James goes on to say. The kingdom of God is not in word, but it is in power. And John speaks into this. He speaks to his spiritual children, the, um, uh, John the Apostle. In 1 John 3.18, he says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Right? Love doesn't come just in word. 
or in tongue. It comes through deeds. And it comes through the truth of the, the power that has shaped you. Listen to this quote from John MacArthur. Faith that does not result in right living may have many words to support it, but it will have no power. A person's true spiritual character is not determined by the impressiveness of his words, but by the power of his life. Faith does not result in right living. That's the whole idea. Faith must result in right living. It must. Jesus talks into that, doesn't he? What's he say? Many will say, Lord, Lord. Yeah. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of the Father. So Paul leaves them with a choice here. He's talking about discipline. I'm going to come and I'm going to evaluate based on character, based on deed, based on action, not based on your talk. And I can come with a rod in one hand, or I can come with love and gentleness. What do you want? Well, you can tell from this letter what he would prefer to come with. So a spiritual father must discipline as well. So, so important. So important. When, when, when the church starts to go the wrong way, when his beloved spiritual children start to go the wrong way, he will get strict with them. He is going to bring the rod. They're trying to call him on it. Some of them are puffed up saying, no, he's not going to do it. He's like, don't try me. Don't try me. So we've seen six things here. Each of these elements is of vital importance in the discipleship process. And I think as uh, spiritual fathers, we'd all just prefer to keep the first four um, or first five. Discipline is, isn't easy. It's not a favorite thing to do. It's not a favorite thing to do as a parent, but it is sometimes necessary and particularly when dealing with wayward people whom we love. But all of these elements are vital and the reproductive process for us as Christians is vital. We're supposed to be reproducing. So my question really simple here today is, are you a spiritual father? Have, have you ever led someone to Christ? Have you been involved in some, some effective discipleship process with someone? You ought to be if you're a believer and you've been a believer for any length of time. That's the direction that you should go. And if you haven't, just consider for a second what might be holding you back from becoming one. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. What an incredibly practical passage you've given us here from Paul and the words of wisdom. We're grateful, Lord, for these words. I pray that we take them to heart. I certainly have, Lord, as I've just studied these words and listened Lord, to your word this week, I'm overcome with the fact that you would choose even to use human agents at all because we're so faulty, prone to um, be lazy, prone to be apathetic. But Lord, what a great, rich reward. What a great joy we, we forfeit when we aren't choosing to become spiritual fathers. Yes, it could be argued that Paul, Paul wasn't getting so much joy out of the Corinthians for the moment, but, but he still loved them because he set his love upon them. And his love meant he had to love them in the difficult times as well. 
just as we do as physical parents. We love our kids in every stage of life and must be consistent and faithful to them in our love. And I pray that you'd help us as a church, as people of God, that we'd be faithfully, Lord, looking for opportunities in which we can disciple and pour in to others. Lord, you desire that the uh, your, your church would grow. You would build it, but you've chosen the manner in which to do that, to use human agents to spread the gospel and to sort of just cause this amazing spiritual reproduction on earth. And Lord, I pray that we would not shy away from that. Provide opportunities for us, Lord, whether it's family members or or neighbors or what have you, Lord, that there would be more opportunities for the gospel to be heard and for discipleship to take place, that we here at Calvary Chapel, Cardiff, would have many spiritual children. God, thank you for your word. We pray that you are glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.